Hey everybody, welcome to the show. My guest today is the wild and wonderful Micah Mortali. Micah is the author of the book Rewilding, Meditations, Practices, and Skills for Awakening in Nature, which is another gem, if I do say so myself, published by Sounds True and their collection. He is the founder and dean of the Kripalu School of Mindful Outdoor Leadership, and Micah's life work is about reconnecting modern people with the restorative powers of the living earth through mindfulness, yoga, and rewilding practices. He leads trainings, retreats, and seminars on rewilding and mindful outdoor leadership at Kripalu and across New England. You know, I was joking around with Micah before and during the call that, to me, he's the guy who wrote the book on rewilding. You know that expression, the guy who wrote the book or the girl who wrote the book, you know, the person who wrote the book. To me, he's that person. And I say this jokingly, and of course, there are many people involved in the rewilding movement. So yeah, I say this tongue in cheek, but to me, Micah's book, it really speaks to me and the one facet of rewilding that I am really drawn towards. And that is how through connecting with the natural world outside of us through things like meditation, we can awaken and connect with parts of us that might still be asleep or as I've said before, lost in the woods. So to me, you know, there's this kind of awakening of the soul of our spiritual bodies that occurs when we mindfully connect with our local landscape, Mother Earth, Father Son, you know, the cycles of nature. So today we, in this episode, we discuss how we have benefited from, you know, sitting in silence in nature and how things have this amazing way of just kind of landing when we make meditating in nature a part of our daily routine and rituals. So it's this sense of wisdom that just kind of comes over us when we have that time in silence to sort things out, essentially. So we discuss, in this episode, we discuss things like ancestral survival skills, lighting sacred fires, you know, fires by friction, eating wild plants, eating seasonally, and as mentioned, how through meditating in nature, we can redevelop uh, reverence and gratitude for our bodies, the earth, our communities, family, friends, and that, you know, kind of redeveloping reverence and gratitude for that long history humans have communing with the elements throughout evolution. So awesome episode. If you're new to rewilding, I think this episode and Micah's book, for that matter, is a great overview of, you know, different schools of thought that embody rewilding within their curriculum, um, from Waldorf schools all the way to the Mindful Outdoor Leadership Program at Kripalu, which I will make sure we have links to all of this stuff in the show notes so you guys can know um, how to get in touch with Micah's work and everything they're doing there with this awesome program. Today, we actually touch on species loneliness, sensory anesthesia, and nature deficit disorder. These are things that are in Micah's book and he goes into in much more depth. So again, I highly recommend that work as a whole comprehensive snapshot of all things current rewilding, meditating in nature. Um, but yeah, here in this episode today, we're offering, you know, practical strategies for right now. So, you know, if you're stuck staying at home right now, which we all are, um, let's say you're in a big city and you don't have the opportunity to be out in a backyard, um, at the end of this, Micah actually takes us through a lovely nature connection meditation that you can do with essentially just a window or even a plant um, or even a picture in your house for that matter that might be of a vacation or something like that. But yeah, stick around to the end of the episode because there are some great 
tools that we have to offer for you guys right now. And actually, before we get started, I wanted to share a quote that Micah had uh, written in his book, which actually is a Grandfather Stalking Wolf um, quote. Um, and Grandfather Stalking Wolf is a, a First Nations man who taught the famous tracker and author Tom Brown Jr., um, whose teachings ha- you know have been distilled through uh, my teachers here at Huron Walk Healing Center um, locally in London, Ontario, Canada. Um, but anyways, the quote is, skills are the doorway to awareness and awareness is the doorway to spirit, which I love. I love that quote. I would agree from my experience working in working with ancestral survival skills. Um, in his book, he points out that these survival skills are actually things that can help us, you know, in the day-to-day respond mindfully to the world around us rather than, you know, getting caught up in the cycle of just reacting and how these ancestral survival skills we learn, you know, we essentially learn how to pause, take a breath, assess the situation. Important stuff, I believe, you know, to call upon right now. And I would agree from, again, my experience with these practices is very much the invitation to go inward. And uh, yeah, but anyways, I guess on that front, segueing into how are you guys doing? You know, are you finding time to kind of sit in silence, sit in quiet right now? I know I have been doing my best to make sure that's a part of my daily routine. Um, You know, I hope you guys are doing well and I hope you're taking good care of yourselves right now. I feel like we're kind of in the middle of this collective vision quest right now, um, fasting from many things familiar, right? And um, I keep calling attention to this and it's just quite at the forefront right now. And in this episode, we discuss how, you know, just being in nature as a daily practice can really put our fears into perspective, you know, again, much like a vision quest or it can be, I guess I should say. Um, and I think right now the benefit of forest therapy, of walking barefoot, of doing breathing exercises or journaling, you know, at the base of a tree, if you've got a tree in your backyard are very, very powerful right now at helping us stay centered. They're helping us, you know, stay healthy as we kind of navigate these unknown waters again. So in the midst of a sort of void and, um, yeah. Well, anyway, speaking of unknown waters and journaling, I've actually been writing an essay. Um, it's kind of to help me get my head around this whole coronavirus pandemic and where I am going in life and, you know, and even in this to kind of speculate on what could be um, going on, you know, or where we could be going from all this. And, you know, where I feel like we could be going, it kind of scares me sometimes. And, so I've been doing my best to just kind of double down on my rewilding practices. Um, you know, been journaling a lot by doing this uh, essay. Essentially, it's going to be, I think, something just for me. And it's allowed me to work out a lot of my thoughts and shadows around this, things that I'm missing and grieving. Um, you know, at first I thought about making this essay public, you know, and I still might. But, um, and I did mention that in my newsletter that I would be, you know, putting this out there or maybe even... A, maybe even doing a podcast, I guess, about it. Um, but I think I might want to hold on to it. And that's partly because, you know, I don't really have the time right now to fully invest in this. I realize I've kind of opened a can of worms. And I think this is going to be more of a, like of a marathon, of a spiritual marathon where we're constantly being, you know, called into checking, um, checking ourselves at the door, seeing if we're responding or reacting. Um, so anyways, that said, I do 
want to call attention um, to this. This reason why I'm bringing this up is because Charles Eisenstein wrote a wonderful essay titled The Coronation, and I shared that in my newsletter, and I'm going to plug it again here um, as well as put a link in the show notes here for this episode because I'm brilliantly done and something that it gave me a lot of hope, a lot of perspective, um, a lot of the same things I had been thinking, but a writer like Charles Eisenstein um, is author of Sacred Economics and other books, um, brilliantly put together. So if you are in need of some sort of silver lining, you know, at least for right now, because um, again, I really do think this will be a marathon here. Um, the coronation offers a spark of hope and, you know, essentially a, an opportunity for us to unite around the world. And I think it's lovely. And speaking of uniting, another great resource in that front is Micah's book. You know, it's jam-packed with practices you can do right today to start your rewilding journey if it's something, rewilding is something new to you. Um, also, please check out the Mindful Outdoor Leadership Program at Kripalo. If you are looking to, you know, reconnect with a part of yourself through meditating in nature, through ancestral survival skills, then, you know, that is one awesome program you're going to want to take a look at. Um, what else could I say here before we kick it off? We're just about 10 minutes, so I think we'll get to it. Um, oh, yeah, some technical difficulties here today in this episode. So I am sorry about that. I did my best to patch it up and make everything work. I think everything is coherent. Um, but again, I guess that's the problem you, you get when you have two guys living off in remote parts of the world, close to nature, internet connection sometimes just isn't the best, but, uh, yeah, we put it together and I am grateful for the opportunity to connect with Micah. It was a pleasure to get to know him and to discuss all things rewilding. I really do hope we get the chance to do it again. So hope you guys enjoy this episode. Much love to you all. Welcome to Rewild My Bio, a self-help and alternative health podcast. I'm your host, Sean Slade. Join me as I share stories, science, and strategies to help you rewild your biology and redefine your biography. Hello, everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of Rewild My Bio. I am super thrilled to be here with you guys today with my guest, Micah Mortali. Micah, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. It's great to be here. It's honestly, it's great to have you. Um, it's great to connect in these times. And uh, yeah, I'm so excited to, as I kind of said before, be talking to the guy. And what I mean by the guy is the guy who wrote the book on rewilding. And I know you might, uh, you know, be humble and say that, no, you're not the guy. And I, you know, there's many guys out there, but for me, the way you wrote this book, it's, it really resonated with me because yeah, you're touching on that rewilding of the soul and bring weaving in mindfulness and Eastern philosophy and yoga. And, uh, I just thought it was brilliantly put together. So thank you very much for writing that. Um, that's really kind of you to say that. And I, I appreciate it so much. It, 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 um, was a lot of work to write a book. It's my first book. And uh, mm -hmm. when I hear people say stuff like that, Sean, it just warms my heart and makes me really feel glad I did it. So awesome. Um, 
Well, I'm glad you did it, and I think the world is glad that you did it right now. And it's it's interesting times. I mean, I, since starting this podcast, I didn't think this whole coronavirus thing would would kind of kibosh my whole first few episodes. But it's kind of it's influencing the way in which we interact in the world, and I think it's so needed right now for this. What we, I don't think it's necessarily a post coronavirus world yet, but um, I, th- I find folks looking towards nature. I don't know about you on your end, and, yeah. um, but for me lately, engagement in content of you know, whether it be Instagram posts, which again, I really appreciate your Instagram stories and taking folks through mindfulness practices every day here throughout things. But it's, um, yeah, the way in which people are intervening or interacting rather with the natural world is, um, it's front and center right now. And I think it's, it's good times for that. I don't know if you've noticed the same thing or. Yeah, I have, um, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, um, you know, with the, um, with the kind of the stay at home, you know, the social isolation, the quarantining mm-hmm. the lockdowns, um, you know, we're not, a lot of folks are kind of like at home. Mm-hmm. So, so for some folks that might be an apartment, you know, and then for other folks that might be a house with a yard and woods. And I think it just varies according to where people are. But I think for, there's a, a lot of people right now who are at home mm-hmm. um, with more free time and they're, they're, spending more time in their backyard or their front yard or on the hiking trails. And, you know, even for me, we've been, I've been working from home now for, I think it's like 12 days Mm -hmm. and, um, gosh, I can hear kids on my street. Um, I never hear kids on my street. Um, you know, I see people walking everywhere. Don't usually see that as much. Um, so yeah, there's a way that, um, you know, I just, you know, it, I think our the way that we, I was talking to my wife about it last night, like, um, you know, there's a part of me that doesn't want things to go back to the way that they were fully. You I know, you, I, yeah. we were talking about, especially like when it comes to food, you know, um, you know, being rewilding people, we, we want to have a relationship with where our food comes from. Mm-hmm. And we, to the greater or lesser degrees, do that. And I think this situation for me has been very motivating to get my act together and really get my backyard homestead going, you. you know, in the past years we've grown vegetables, but this year I'm like, no, this year I have to have a basic farm going in the backyard. Yeah. Cause I didn't like the way it felt having to go to the supermarkets and it felt like an end of the world movie. Right. And it did, I felt vulnerable, you know? Totally. And, uh, totally. So I feel like, um, I think there's a way in which this situation is just pointing out how fragile, um, like our way our society is in ways that you and I are really aware of that Mm -hmm. we've just modern people, domesticated humans. We've just become so vulnerable. um, So disconnected from the nourishing qualities of our lands. Um, And this is an opportunity in some ways, you know, there's a lot of heartbreaking scenarios happening right now, but some of the opportunities are about a big reset maybe for some of us. Yes, so. I can I can totally resonate with that reset button. And I think, again, folks are also seeing opportunity from this, which is, might still be too early to say that. But um, yeah, people who, I feel like folks are waking up everywhere, waking up in nature, waking up with nature right now. So uh, again, just that wasn't a plug of the book. It really, it truly is something that folks are doing right now is awakening in nature. And um, I can also resonate with what you're saying about not, things not wanting to go back to normal, right? There are certain things I, I hope that maybe people do become more connected with. And I think there's going to be a new normal. I don't think things maybe will ever go back to nor, you know, normal, normal, like, like they were anyways. Um, and I also like what you brought up too, about connecting 
uh, how there's a spectrum, I guess. And yes, I'm, I'm lucky in that I do have a backyard and I do have access to uh, a lake really close to me, but some folks are in cities right now and, you know, maybe don't have that access to a backyard. So it's challenging times. And yeah, maybe towards the end here, we'll give folks a little, uh, a little window meditation that we can look out as we kind of alluded to before. So I like that you, you brought that up because yes, not everybody has access, right? And that's, that's unfortunate really. Um, so yeah, so what I was going to ask you, Micah, is we'll get right into your, so this show is big on uh, rewilding biology as well as biography. So what is your biography into nature? And uh, yeah, could you tell us a little bit about your relationship with nature? You had mentioned in the book, uh, it started quite young for you your relationship with nature and kind of maybe weaving in how you got into yoga and mindfulness and how you became, uh, you know, the director of mindful outdoor leadership at Kripalu. Sure. Um, yeah, my connection with nature goes back to, you know, probably being three or four years old, you know, and, um, you know, growing up in the late seventies, early eighties, um, my folks, um, built a house out in the woods when I was real young and, um, for a while there, we didn't have electricity. We were kind of off the grid. We had a pump well and heated with wood and used kerosene lanterns. And so, you know, that experience for me left a deep impression, you know, just some of the mm. memories of that time. Right. Um, you know, it was, it was almost like I was living in um, little house in the prairie or something, even yeah. though right down the street, kids were playing Atari. All right. So that, that had a deep impression. Then, you know, when my folks got divorced, when I was about six or seven, my mom and I moved to a town away and um, I was like a latchkey kid a lot. So that was like an eighties term, but I was like, at the end of the day, take the school bus home, had my own key, unsupervised free range kid. Right. And I just like roamed through the forest a lot with my bow and arrow or would make fire. I was, I did stuff that kids today don't get to do for sure. Um, you know, climb trees and um, play with my GI Joe guys out in the woods and nice. just, you know, right. Do my thing, you know, sounds and, like the eighties. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so nature was always a place that I loved. And I fell in love with the landscape in New England. You know, we had a lot of stone walls in the town. I grew up in really old, rugged stone walls, you know, maple trees and oak trees. And, um, you know, loved the falls, the smell of the leaves and the, the wood smoke. Um, just had a very visceral sensory bond with the New England landscape. Mm -hmm. um, got to know it really well. And I just, as I got older, I just would always go to the woods. It was like the place where I felt most comfortable. Um, and then I got into, um, in probably late high school and then into college, I started getting drawn into, um, Zen Buddhism and I, you know, I read, uh, the Dharma bums by Jack Kerouac okay. and got into kind of Buddhism and, um, uh, mindfulness through that doorway. And then actually majored in religious studies okay. as an undergrad student. Um, but at college, I was always, um, going back and forth between yoga and mindfulness and Christian mysticism. But I was always like enhancing all those inquiries by being out on the land. It was like nature um, evoked a deepening of all those things I was pondering. And so um, after college, I got into um, outdoor education. I was a therapeutic wilderness counselor with at-risk teens for three years down in the Carolinas. So I lived up on a mountain, you know, out in tents that we made and three years out, awesome. out on the mountain. Wow. Um, kind of missed 9-11, you know, didn't have a phone, just oh, kind wow. of, you know, it was just sort of off the charts for a while. Right. Um, and I found Kripalu Yoga at that time. And um, it unlocked some doors in me. And uh, I decided I needed to go up and 
uh, Experience Kripalu Center, which um, I did and, and did my yoga teacher training there in 2003. And I've basically been at Kripalu for the last 15 years in uh, various roles. Um, and, uh, you know, probably it was probably back in 2010, I think I came across Richard Louv's book, Last Child in the Woods. Right. Okay. saving our children from nature deficit disorder. And it was about the time that my son was born and I became a father. And when I read that book, Last Child in the Woods by Richard Louv, it, it inspired me. Um, something about that term nature deficit disorder just resonated with me um, because I was beginning to see the effects of the iPhone and how much of human life was migrating sort of online. Mm-hmm. Right around and, that time too. Yeah, right. And and how many how how much people were spending less time sort of outdoors. And I thought about my kids and the world they were going to grow into. And then during that time, I became the director of the schools at Kripalu. So I was overseeing the yoga school, the Ayurveda school, and then the yoga therapy school. And this was before the Mindful Outdoor Leadership Program was created. And I was traveling around the country uh, as the director, going to different conferences. And I was at a, a yoga journal conference in Midtown Manhattan. And I was on like the seventh floor and I was in one of these huge ballrooms with no windows with like 150 Mm, yogis in like rubber clothes on rubber mats, you know, (laughs) jumping around. And it just, I had a moment of, um, I had a moment of clarity Mm. and the question came to me, like how much more disconnected could we be from the earth in this situation right now? Yeah. And it struck me that the, 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 the mindfulness in the yoga world that I was really deeply embedded in had become so incredibly disconnected from nature. True. Yeah. Which was yeah. ironic because yoga came from people living in wild places studying nature. Right. All the asanas are animal or nature forms, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. Yeah. But yet it now it's this very sterile thing that happens in temperature controlled rooms right. where there's no dirt or air <laughs> or exactly. You know. Right. Yeah. So that got me, it got me really thinking about, um, you know, the land at Kripalu, which I have really fallen in love with. Um, we have, um, we're on ancestral Stockbridge, Muncie, Mohican land okay. uh, at Kripalu and it's very sacred land. Um, and, um, I have a, a good friend who's, uh, in the Mohican tribe and they're out in Wisconsin. Um, and you know, the, 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 the way that the Mohican people, um, relate to the land, um, is incredibly reverent. And, um, I got to thinking about how Kripalu could, um, be inspired, um, by the Mohican people and how we could in a way, um, begin to reopen the relationship and the conversation between modern humans and the living earth. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of got me thinking about the school of mindful outdoor leadership. And, um, in 2018, we launched that program, um, and it's been you know, awesome. a, a wonderful success so far. Right. And it's so needed too, as I had already said, but, and I do love how you refer to the earth or nature and throughout the book as the living earth. I think it adds again with, I guess for me being a PhD student, looking at defining all these things right now, it sounds silly, but like, yeah, defining, as you know, from doing your master's, as you mentioned, but like, yeah, defining certain things, right? So what is nature? And it's, you know, the nature of things is it can be used different ways. So I do really love how you, you know, uh, Talk about the living earth. And I also love and how Sean, sorry, yeah. I have to give credit to Karen Miriam Goldberg, who is my okay. advisor at Goddard, who really like introduced me to that term. Oh, it's perfect. So I really want to thank Karen so much for that because it, uh, yeah, that term really did, um, 
it was like a wonderful like piece of language to be given. Right. And I find in these times or, you know, just for me anyways, recently, I feel like, and I think a lot of folks have been saying this, or I've heard this before and I've said it many times in the show is that people, um, or sorry, we, we're, we don't have enough words for things in the English language as to how we starting to understand certain things, especially with nature connection. So you're right. And I mean, and looking at science from like people like Paul Stamets, we look at, you know, all sorts of mycelia networks and what have you and forests talking to one another and plant sentience being a popular study these days um, within, yeah, within forest therapy and whatnot. So yes, we need, we need more of these words. Um, another thing that I really enjoy, I mean, I really enjoy about the book and everything you had just said is, is that weaving in of the mindfulness and how essentially meditating in nature, um, you know, essentially it's a key element of rewilding. And we had said before getting on is rewilding. There's many different subsects in, in ways about it, but the piece, what I love about this book anyways, is that whole focus on mindfulness. And you already touched on yoga's, you know, origins in nature and heck even to religion, right? Origins again in nature. Um, and we're removing some of the, like some of the teachings that come and to remove it from nature to me also seems a little bit, you know, what the heck are we doing here? Kind of, kind of thing in our spandex on our yoga mats indoors and whatnot. Um, but yeah, one thing I wanted to ask is, um, what exactly for me, when I meditate in nature, I feel like I'm being recharged. It's for me, it's where I can find my superpower Sometimes I use the analogy of, you know, how those devices you can rest your phone on so it charges the phone. I feel like when I'm leaning up against a tree, sometimes I'm being recharged like that. And I feel like that analogy helps people go, oh, yeah, that's what nature can do. So maybe can you explain the significance of meditating in nature, why that might be? Um, I'm thinking towards like things like biophilia. So I don't know if you can maybe explain biophilia and what it is about nature that we seem to be drawn to. Yeah. Oh, it's a great question. Um well, meditation in nature um, is um, powerful, I think, because um, nature is fascinating. And, you know, because like biophilia, right, is this innate love for living things like mm. human beings, because we evolved, right? Like out on the land, we evolved totally woven into the, the, the contours and the landscapes, the ecosystems, like our nervous systems are, they co-evolved with everything that is alive on earth, all the trees and the sounds and the textures. Right. So it's our natural habitat. And so I think when we are out in our natural habitat, um, we tend to feel better. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. Right. Less, yeah. less distractions. And, and yeah, it makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so, you know, I like the work of uh, Rachel and Stephen Kaplan, the, the, they're environmental psychologists, I think at the university of Michigan, and they kind of coined this term attention restoration theory, Okay, which, um, I, I, I first came across in Louvre's writing, and um, it's basically this idea that there are two kinds of attention, mm -hmm. um, and one of them is called directed attention, which is when we're focusing, and right. then we're inhibiting things that are distracting us, right? right? Yep. Directed attention, right? Which most people think, like, that's meditation. Um, and there's some forms of meditation where, you know, that is the point, just single-pointed focus, like classical yoga. Um, but then there's this other kind of attention, which they call fascination attention. And this is when um, we allow our awareness to just be fascinated by whatever's around us. And so nature, um, when we're outside, um, you know, maybe you see a, a squirrel hopping in, along the grass. And then all of a sudden a bird flies and you look at that. And then you look up and there's a cloud going by, right? Mm -hmm. And then you hear the sound of the wind. And so th th this is just kind of the way that our brains and our nervous systems functioned when we were hunter gatherers, right. that we were just always kind of 
moving around, being fascinated, noticing things that were changing and moving. And it's a very restorative kind of attention, right? Especially because in our society, you know, we are mostly, especially when we're working, we're trying to direct our attention all the time. Right. And what the Kaplan's found out was that that's like exhausting. You get to a certain point and you just can't do it anymore. For sure. You get directed attention fatigue. So their antidote for it is fascination attention. So um, that's one way to think about nature meditation is that when we, when we go outside, um, we can, first of all, be restored, as you were saying, we mm-hmm. can, we can just allow our attention to be like open right, and to kind of move and wander. And that can be meditative, right? Because yeah. all those things are happening in the moment, but it's kind of a flow of things, right? Without so it's the chipmunk and then it's the squirrel and then it's the sun and then it's the rainbow. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're, we're present, but we're just not trying to hold our attention. Yeah. No, I'm so glad you said that because my first experience with this would have been last year, even through a vision quest. And they were, we were told to let go of any practices that we have, regular meditation practices. And for me, yeah, mindfulness meditation and then other forms of like, you know, shamanic journeying, things that I will do. But uh, for me, that was the first time where the, the meditation was to use your senses and, and just be with nature, right? And, and I think I mean, the listeners couldn't see Micah or me talking here, but yeah, um, using hands and just think of being in the flow of nature, it, it becomes meditative in itself. And yeah, without having to focus your, you know, your, your attention to any one thing and just, um, and what I, well, you're essentially, yeah, mentioning a a sit spot, which is something you speak about in the book. Could you maybe say a little bit about what a sit spot is and, and yeah, maybe uh, elaborate a little bit more on how we can use that type of meditation there? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so a sit spot um, is um, a practice of sitting on the land um, in a place that you go to regularly. And the practice is to simply observe um, what's happening. Right. And um, it's something that I think Tom Brown first learned from his teacher, Stalking Wolf who was Apache. Mm-hmm. And then Tom practiced it for many years and passed it on to John Young. And then John Young built it into the whole eight shields approach. And right. it's kind of become like a core practice. I think of like most nature connection schools and forest kindergartens and whatnot, like worldwide, it's really taken yeah. off and been become embedded. But what I love about it is that one way I think about it is that it helps modern domesticated people overcome what Richard Louv calls place blindness. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Because modern people, like if we're spending 11 hours a day on a screen and over 90% of our lives indoors, which is, you know, now the average for most modern people in industrialized societies, um, we, we haven't bonded with our land. We don't know where we live from an ecological standpoint. We're divorced from nature. Right. And so the sit spot is a way to come back into connection and relationship with where you live. Mm -hmm. And what's so cool about it is that it, it's like an onion. It's layers of unfolding. Mm-hmm, so, right. Um, you're right. Like you might go outside and sit for 30 minutes before you notice the flower that's like six inches from right there knee. the whole time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Or that there's a tree there. I didn't notice it for a week. You and mean, then all of a sudden, that's oh, right. Yeah. Oh. It's not just, not just minutes, but within weeks you're like, geez, there's a tree right there. And I've been here for, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So no. there's a lot, there's a lot to it. It's, it's a pretty neat practice. And, uh, amazing things can happen. I mean, just this morning I was doing a sit spot live on Instagram in my backyard and it's not a formal sit spot because I'm kind of talking and Mm -hmm. whatnot. But um, right there, I'm sitting there in my backyard and I'm not sure if it was a a Cooper's heart 
Cooper's hawk or a uh, short-shinned hawk, but it was an exhibitor, mm-hmm. and it came up and landed on the black locust tree right near me. Oh wow! You know, while I was sitting there, right. and I was just, you know, and then swooped and all the birds, and there's all this action going on. And, oh yeah, um, it's 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 pretty, it's great. And you know, another topic you you maybe you're going to ask about it, but another thing it, it's great with helping with is, mm-hmm. um, you know, what Robin Wall Kimmerer calls species loneliness, you know, which is, um, yeah, go yeah, ahead. You know. Say, say a little bit more. Uh, yeah, that's, that was one thing I really wanted to get into is yeah. Species loneliness. Cause actually myself to give you a little uh, segue into that even is, so I'm, I'm looking, I'm in the process of looking for property, uh, for that. I hope to have one day my nature therapy school or nature connection school of sorts. And yeah, for me on that list is moose, bear and wolves. If there's not moose, bear and wolves that roam the land and I can share it with, then I'm not interested. And like, so what, you know, what is that about these, you know, predators essentially, or things that could run me right over that draws us to it. So I feel like, um, yeah, there is a desire to seek cohabiting with these creatures again, um, whether it be just going for a camping trip. Um, so yeah, maybe you could speak about species loneliness and yeah. I love hearing you talk about moose, bear and wolves and, uh, <laughs> you know, how important that is to you and, um, that, that, you know, that that's a priority, you know, and I had to do like a business plan for the school of mindfulness leadership at Kripalu and kind of talk about where we'd be in five years. And part of my five-year plan was that within five years, we'd have wolves back on Yoken Ridge where the school is, you know, it just, who knows. right? Right. But like, that was like, I wanted to visualize that we would see a return, um, of wolves to the land. And so do you have a return of wolves or no? Well, no. no, we have koi wolves okay. here. Okay. Um, or yeah, so it's like a mix between the eastern coyote and, and right. the wolves. Yeah. Um, and what no and, wolves that we know of. And specifically the forest and the land around there. What exactly is it? Would I be? I'm I'm, I'm ignorant to I guess what it would. Is it boreal forest or no? Not quite that low over there. No. I'm trying um, to picture. Is no, it it's Carolinian? Not boreal forest. We have um the forest at Kripalu where the school is mm-hmm. is um it's like a, it's an oak and um, eastern hemlock mixed forest. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we, we have, um, we have a very mature, um, Eastern hemlock forest, um, which the school is sort of right. amidst. And it's um, absolutely beautiful. And I, and all links to these programs and that I'm definitely going to put them in the show notes, but pictures alone, yes, beautiful. And that's kind of why I was asking. I really enjoy yeah. seeing the landscape there for sure. Yeah. But we, you know, we do have, um, we do have black bear and coyote mm. and, um, you know, we have some moose in this area, but not a lot. And, um, yeah, you know, the, the, um, the sit spot practice and species loneliness, like really, um, go, go together. Um, you know, in, in the school, one of the you know, things we do every morning is we have the students after we gather and have a fire meditation and do some mindful movement. Like they, they kind of disperse out into the forest to their sit spot and they do like a 30 to 45 minute sit, like as the sun is rising. And, um, it's a very, very powerful thing for each person in its own way. Um, and it is a form of meditation because they're practicing being present to what's happening. Um, but there are other things that are happening out there that are very mysterious. Um, and some of them we weren't really expecting or anticipating, but, Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that, um, has been happening with the students is, you know, very literally they're opening up a conversation with the land. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, they're receiving information, um, and oftentimes it's just very meaningful and very surprising, you know, what information they're getting and right. what they're learning. 
Right. No, without a doubt. And I'm glad you actually brought that up because I will say that sometimes here on the podcast, and I know friends of mine that are into, you know, meditating and, and some that aren't, they say, Sean, what the heck are you talking about? You're getting information from the land. And it's, and it's kind of very hard to explain to someone who maybe hasn't had that experience. Right. But when we sit quiet in nature, it's, I mean, and so many folks here on the show and others I've talked to, it's where, yeah, things, when, when the distractions of modern day life, I guess, um, when they dissipate, we're able to kind of sit with ourselves and things that we know deep within or things that maybe we're trying to create. So much can come through in those spaces. And I think you're right. It's kind of profound. And it's one of the most interesting things I find about forest therapy research is that, um, yeah, like, uh, through the process of kind of creating a space in nature, folks are able to kind of, it's like, it's like a life coach without a life coach asking questions. Sometimes we're able to like commune with something unseen, or as you said, the mystery that's there. And again, um, it's interesting to me because as I dive down this with a scientific mind, I know there's, there's no science in the world that's going to say, aha, here's what it is, right? Like it's, it's just something there that we're drawn to again. Um, so yeah, I appreciate you saying that, that things do come through in those times, right? For sure. Um, yeah, I don't, uh, one, well, while we're, let's do this while we're talking about it. I don't know. We both share a love for bears. Um, and I find that awesome and fascinating. And you had many stories throughout, uh, can you explain maybe what bear medicine means or when someone says, you know, um, the term medicine, like an animal medicine, what that means to you and, and how maybe synchronicities help us, um, go inward to learn more about ourselves or help us through life when we need them, whether good times or bad. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I have a I have a lifelong connection with bears, um, and it's very mysterious. Um, and I've had some synchronistic experiences with them as well. Um, some of some in my waking life, and some in my dreaming life. Oh, wow. um, as a, as I've gone gone through life, and uh, so um, you know, I, I guess I think it, it kind of comes down to the fact that again, you know the animals that we co-evolved with, um, you know, we're probably a part of their dreams as well. You know, we're, we're an animal that they evolved with, you know, so, um, we're all connected, um, and we're all a part of one another and our collective unconscious in some way. And so, um, you know, we need one another. I think it's like, you know, this is why species loss is, is such a grievous thing, Mm -hmm. you know, um, yeah. You know, I, as you know, we all grew up eating animal crackers, you know, and, and, right. you know, when you see the rhinoceros animal cracker, and then you think about the situation for uh, the rhinoceros, it's, you know, it's, you got to like kind of wrap your head around what does it mean to live in a world where they're not here? Right. And what kind of a hold does that leave for all of us? And uh, mm-hmm. so the bear, um, you know, it's interesting. I did some research on bears and one of the cool things about bears is that the flat-nosed brown bear, the cave bear of ancient times, which mm-hmm. is no longer around, right, yeah. um, is associated with some of the earliest evidence of human religious activity. Really? Um, that they found the skull of cave bears in um, a cave in France and situated in a very ceremonial place way in the back of the cave. Um, so it's, it's thought that you know, this, like people at that time like in some way revered the bear medicine, right? Wow. Um, Bears are very similar to us. You know, they have five digits. Mm-hmm. They can stand upright. In some ways, they have a similar kind of almost similar facial structure to ours. Right. Um, 
you know, and there is some kind of relationship between us and bears. And there's some indigenous traditions which talk about like bears being some version of us that split off at one point. Right. Um, so, um, you know, as a little kid, um, I had a postcard of a little red haired boy. I used to have red hair and there was a huge grizzly bear sitting behind the boy kind of with its arms around it. And then all these animals sitting around the boy with a fire in the middle by the ocean. I still have the little postcard and I had it on my wall and I just always looked at it and the bear was always at my back in that photo. I always felt that like energy. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, growing up in Connecticut, we didn't have any bears in the eighties and Mm nineties and, you know, but I always wanted that, that presence, you know? And, um, so as, you know, as I, as I grew up, um, when I moved to the Carolinas, uh, was living in the Smokies and there were black bears there. And I had a couple encounters, um, with black bears down there and they were very powerful. I mean, just the, the experience of being with, uh, another, um, uh, life form that is so powerful. Like you're back on the food chain in a way, even if, you know, you know, the bear is probably not going to come and kill you, but it could, right. If it wanted to, Yep. (laughs) you know, and that's just a shift in all of a sudden, like you're just, you know, it it connected again. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Without a doubt. No, I've, I would say it's funny that you say that. Cause yeah, it was that, it was me getting scared, the living, like everything right out of me, one camping trip, um, that I started to develop this relationship with bears. And it wasn't, un, you know, for years later where I started, you know, seeing the synchronicities and kind of tuning into at least what it meant to me. Right. And yeah, it came down to me, uh, camping up in near the Algonquin area here in Ontario. And, yeah, essentially I had left a citronella candle out and apparently black bears like the smell of citronella candles. Didn't know that. That was the only thing out on the campsite. And then, um, so I hear in the middle of the night, I hear bang and the candle falls down. And then all of a sudden I hear heavy breathing, like, like really slow and low and kind of a growl to it. Right. And so I go, Oh shit. So wake up and I start kind of like, you know, scared away, just get out of here. And of course it scurries off. But ever since then, just this connection with bears. Right. And it's, yeah, it's kind of, like you said, it's kind of always there, whether it's behind me, uh, showing me the way. Um, so yeah, just a fascination. And I mean, many other animals too. And I think it's for, for listeners, I guess, um, you know, it's not something I, it's, I think it, what's important from it for me anyways, is how it resonates with you in that moment. Right. It could be like, you know, for some, it could even be like a horoscope, but, and the reason why I say that is because, you know, sometimes people, Oh, is this my spirit animal? It seems to be something that maybe not to use the word trendy, but it's something that I hear more of these days. Um, and it's like folks are running to the internet or opening up a book and saying, what is my, what is my spirit animal? What's that mean? Right. Or a tarot card or what have you. But when it, when it's there, like in the way that you explain it in the book and, and by no means I, I, Definitely have to check out the book because the stories get more exciting with uh, Micah's adventures with bears. But I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's important to see what that means for you, right? And sit with it. Yeah. 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 I, um, so I'm hesitant. Like when you ask me about it, I'm hesitant to say, well, bear medicine means, you know, X, Y, or Z, you know, because. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I did, I've got, I've, you know, I've done that and read about that. And I've learned a lot from reading books about it, but I'm hesitant to say definitively this animal represents this, you know, mm-hmm. because I do feel like it's more of a personal journey of, um, of observation. Sure. Um, and, uh, um, and with bears, you know, um, there, you know, with, with the bear. And I think for me, with my own journey, you know, with like, and again, even just the term spirit animal, right. I, I try not to use it that much. Um, just because, um, 
you know, I think it's, you know, you can lay a bunch of cards down on the table and draw a card and, you know, and I think go to a workshop and, and, and I think that that's, that's important to begin that journey. And I think maybe yeah. that's a step along the journey of becoming more familiar and more intimate. Yes. And, thanks. Yeah. Right. And then it takes you out, you know, onto the land. And the other thing ah, is yeah. that I think there's, um, there's sometimes we put the big megafauna up on a pedestal. Sure. Whereas, you know, honestly, like when I'm in my backyard and I see a gray squirrel or oh, a yeah. robin, I get just, I mean, I get just as excited. Right. Well, that's just it. I've, <laughs> so I've gotten into hunting over the last few years. And for me, it's very, yeah, very, very sacred process. It's, it's only getting deeper and deeper, but my love for squirrels, holy smokes, those things are just the best things to watch. And, and it really is. It's the simple, it's the squirrels. And I've heard, you know, big, big time hunters and folks like uh, Stephen Ranella from the Meat Eater uh, sure, TV sure. series and that. Just the guy has a fascination with squirrels, right? Of all yeah. like things, and and yeah, if, if you watch enough squirrels, squirrel medicine. I mean, teaches how to laugh. That's that's yeah. for sure, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and uh, it's so true. And um, yeah, yeah. There's a great delight to be taken in, in oh, spending yeah. time with with our relatives in the more than human mm-hmm. world. And um, you know, that kind of gets us back to we were talking about species loneliness a little mm-hmm. bit before. We didn't quite touch on it, but. Uh, um, I think it, I think it is a real thing today. You know, I, um, I, you know, we, it's only been a short amount of time that modern domesticated people have, um, like dramatically distanced themselves from animals, uh, right. wild animals or, you know, farm animals, let's say, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. a lot of people own oh, yeah. cats and dogs. Right. But, um, that sense of that unnamed sadness as Robin Wall Kimmerer puts it, um, is something that I did want to put out there for folks to think about. Um, because, um, there is great joy and great, um, uh, great fulfillment that's found when we, um, get to know the little critters that we share our lands with. Right. And, you know, whether it's, you know, again, like, and I know a lot of people who are big birders and I, I, I just, you know, maybe one day I'll, um, get more excited about certain animals, but, um, just seeing a chickadee, you know, makes me happy. Well, that's just to teach their own. And for me, like seeing a praying mantis is just, it's awe-inspiring because obviously they're a little bit harder to find too. But for me, yeah, it's just again, from all sizes. And I think you're right to say that. In fact, um, yeah, species loneliness being a thing and we're beginning, and this is something I want to say, and I think it, I think it fits here. And, and again, at the risk of becoming too political, I just want to mention that right now in these times, it's 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 interesting to me. I've seen a lot of things on the internet um, in regards to, like, say, vegan vegetarians and, and blaming right now wild meat for everything that's going on with coronavirus. And, you, you know, I think what we're talking about here, or at least I am when I'm talking about hunting, is is not um, a bunch of animals that have been put in cages and are in a very busy market and where disease and cleanliness and hygiene are a problem. And I could understand how one would want to maybe point a finger at that. And I, and I would, you know, I would second that. That's no way for animals to be treated. Um, I'm speaking about wild animals and, and communing with these animals in a way that is very sacred and special. And um, for me, it's knowing the process of where my foods come from, from field to fork, literally. So it's, I think there's just something different there. I just wanted to, just wanted to say that, that's all. Um, but another thing you had mentioned is how that we, we might be in animals dreams. I had never really thought about that before. And I really am glad that you said that because I have two uh, young nephews right now. And it's interesting to me to read more about the work of um, Carl Jung 
is something I've been diving into a lot more these days. And I know you had even Joseph Campbell as well. And I know you had some Joseph Campbell quotes in the book, but our, I find it interesting that children, some of the earliest dreams that they're having, they very much are about animals, right? And our connection with them and in a very animated way. And um, from their favorite cartoon characters, it's just interesting to me that, yeah, from the very young age, we're dreaming and we have this, you know, kinship, I guess, with, with wild animals. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's very powerful and, you know, children have that natural, um, openness and, um, connection to nature. If, if we let them, um, open those doorways. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's important. I never really thought about until I said it just a few minutes ago that we, (laughs) we would be in the dreams of animals too. But as soon as you said it, it struck struck a chord though, because without a doubt, right. How could we not pop into their dreams? Just like they, they would ours. Right. Um, Yeah. We're an animal in you know, we're an animal in their world. mm -hmm, Right. Right. Yeah. Without a doubt. Well, let's, uh, I want to maybe let's switch gears slightly here. Um, right now I kind of touched on everything with, you know, coronavirus and that seems to be kind of shading things, everything these days. Um, but I feel like we need to rewild right now. And there's a quote that you had in the book there. And I just kind of wanted to throw that out there. It says, rewilding is a return from our essential nature. It is an attempt to reclaim something out of what we were before we use words like civilized to define ourselves. And so that really, it, it jumped out at me here today as I was kind of, you know, getting everything together and prepping for the show. And it's just thought, geez, civilized, since we were civilized. And I start questioning myself when I see people fighting over toilet paper. And I ask myself, I know this is a bit provocative of a question and a little bit leading, but, you know, have we really become civilized? And, you know, how might we reclaim some of our senses? I feel like we, in some way, are becoming less civilized through civilization, you know? Um, Oxymoron, and I understand the paradox in the question, but... Leading, yes. Um, but yeah, just just to get your thoughts, you know, what, what do you think about civilization these days and how might rewilding help us? Well, um, I think that, um, you know, civilization has, um, you know, separated us from nature, mm-hmm. um, essentially. Right. And um, civilization has domesticated us. So, um, you know, we, we've been separated from where our food comes from. Um, we've been separated from the land that it comes from. Right. Um, we've been separated from, uh, the great elements of, um, earth, water, fire, air, and ether to a great degree. Um, civilization has separated us from community, from the tribe, from, um, the extended family. Um, civilization has separated us from our relatives in the more than human world. Um, civilization has separated us to a great degree from meaning, um, from purpose. Um, civilization to a great degree has separated us from vibrant health, um, and strength and vitality. Um, so, and, you know, civilization has given us warm, comfortable houses and, um, cars and Netflix and the ability to travel and, um, you know, some, some, you know, uh, which, so it's, it's a mixed bag, right? But yeah, it is. I, 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 yeah. I say that, um, you know, just because um, re- what rewilding, I think, can do, uh, you know, in the way I approach rewilding, I think as you do as well, like, like from that seat of like present moment awareness of compassion, of um, wanting to be thoughtful and uh, considerate, mm-hmm. you know, in how we engage in this practice of 
um, reconnecting with food and land and community and skills. Um, rewilding ha is essentially like a, how do we reintroduce domesticated humans into their natural habitat? Right. Yeah. Being connected with our, yeah, with our natural habitat or even yeah. just the habitat that we find ourselves in right now. Like essentially, yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And to move towards right. a little bit more sustainable, whereas things can't necessarily get pulled right out from underneath of us and, and we can be connected with our, our food and, and all those things. Right. Again. Yeah. So I think like modern rewilding mm -hmm. doesn't, it's not, doesn't to me, like, I'm not trying to take people back to like a Neolithic way of living where, the, where there's no internet or anything. Right. I, I don't have like, um, it'd be a hard sell with a, the millennials these days, man. I know. You know? I don't have like, a, I don't have like a solution for the world's problems with rewilding. I don't think like, yeah. I wouldn't be so bold as to think like, this is the solution for all people for everything. Right. Um, but I think that re what rewilding can, can offer us is joy. Mm-hmm. I think it can offer us um, balance. I think it can offer us like a way of sort of um, like imagine a world where um, we, we're living closer to the land, closer to our local community, closer to right. the seasons right. where we're more involved in caretaking the ecosystem that we happen to inhabit, but where maybe, you know, we've got solar and wind and internet and we're right. able to still participate in the world. Still talk um, on podcasts like this, right? Yeah. yeah. No, without yeah. a doubt. You know, and um, but we're not like driving all over the right. county every single day using gasoline, you know, and right. you know, who knows? Maybe there's a way we can transition to something that makes a little more sense, more humane way of being. Where mm -hmm. and because the other thing too is that like shooting bow and arrow and um, foraging for food and having a garden and making baskets and mm -hmm. you know, um, growing and nurturing and being in relationship with other life forms in our ecosystem, these things are fun. Right. Yeah. Right. Having fires, like hanging out with people, you know, having a vibrant community. Like these are really joyful things um, that can bring a lot of uh, wonder to our lives. So without doubt, meaning, I, right? yeah. a lot of meaning. Very much so. More depth, I think, than what is currently, you know, we're, we're often distracted, as I say, and, and busy to get to work within the current system. And I, and I like rewilding and that's kind of the, you know, the name of the show rewild my bio as in biology, but also our biography, my biography. Mm -hmm. And I think, to look at economics. I mean, what I've enjoyed and what I've chatted about with some of my rewilding friends and my yogi friends is the pace at which life is going right now. It's quite slow. And, and honestly, it's a lot more sustainable and kind of in sync with the natural rhythms of nature. And to me, as a business and economics, uh, you know, undergrad degree way back in the day, I look at, you know, how we could rewild our biography as an economy, you know, and I think oftentimes capitalism gets slammed as being this horrible thing. I would maybe argue that it's the way in which the game is currently played and certain corporations intent and interests that might be giving it the bad name. However, there obviously is a lot of destruction from the earth that comes from the current system. But to think like, what if we just, you know, and this might be where I get too far out, or maybe I start to overstep rewilding's uh, potential, but I really do see it as, and I might go out and say it, that I see it as a solution, maybe across the board when we look at like, say the way in which we, to go, to go back to your point about community, um, how are we exchanging resources amongst each other, right? Like, um, can we rewild our economy in that? Like, well, one, let's get rid of daylight savings time. Cause that really messed me up for a whole yeah, week or so. Right. But no, even deeper than that, like, let's think when there's less sun, let's maybe have a 35 hour, uh, work week. And then in the summer, maybe we hit 40 hours, right? There's, and again, this might sound kind of 
and, and I get it, it, it is somewhat utopian, but here's an opportunity, and I don't know about you guys, I mean, I, I guess I do know about you guys in the U.S., and again, not to get too political, but here <laughs> in Canada, we have this, we have this, uh, and I love that we're coming together across borders right now, and, yeah, you know, yeah. to, to, I absolutely, right now in these times, it's so good to, to do that, right? reach across absolutely, and do this. Absolutely. But we have this party called the Green Party in Canada. And there's a lot of things that, okay, I don't agree with, carbon taxing and just different things. And again, not getting too political. But what we're essentially getting at with uh, this type of party, it's influencing our other major parties here in Canada and benefit to a multi-party system. But um, what we're seeing is that, yeah, they're they're changing the way in which our major parties are campaigning and, and, and talking to the public. So, Again, maybe it's utopian to think that we'll have, you know, seasonal hour changes and things like that. But I see it as there's so much more than just going in and getting to know parts of ourselves, parts of our land, our food, our shelter, and so on, right? So just I love thought. that, Sean. And mm-hmm. now you're making me reconsider, you know, I, I think sometimes, you know, there's um, – I'm, I'm, sometimes I'm reluctant to say like, yeah, I think this could be a solution right? because I know there's so many different views on yeah. how the world should be. But no, I, I really appreciate what you say. And I don't think it's utopian. I think it's just visionary. I think you're yeah. just being visionary. Thank you. And, um, and I think that rewilding um, holds so much promise yeah. for us um, as a society. And um, so I, I appreciate your optimism. Yeah. And your, well, and we can, yeah, it's just that we can vision. learn and it's the way I go about my research, even looking at forest therapy. I mean, I'm very much using a critical social perspective, looking at it through a decolonizing, um, you know, indigenous lens, I guess you could say, because oftentimes, at least with forest therapy right now, you know, having come from Japan, being very well researched on a physiological level, and, you know, this is the, the scientific benefits on your on your blood and your immune and all these dif- different things. Um, but we often don't look at it through a lens of how can we reciprocate, you know, we're getting benefit from nature, but how can we give that back and how can we incorporate that into an economy or a social structure or what have you, right? So again, it's just time, it's a time for ideas. So I'm happy to, you know, again, like, re- and again, there are so many, even in, amongst, you know, niches like say rewilding, so many, so many things that drive us apart when really we should be, again, reaching cross borders and to having these discussions as to what, you know, how capitalism could, how rewilding could benefit capitalism you know, and, and so on. Yeah. Right. So, and how capitalism could re benefit rewilding even. And I don't know if that's even so, but it's just, again, I think there's mutual, uh, I think there's a, a neat little paradox at play there that we should look at. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I love jo- George Monboy's writing about, um, rewilding of ecosystems and reintroducing megafauna and, mm-hmm. you know, the elephants to Europe and the beavers to, you know, Ireland and, right. you know, the, um, letting some parts of the ocean just go totally wild and, um, you know, the, the wolves in Yellowstone. And, um, you know, I, I think that even our own yards, you know, like letting rewilding our yards, you know, um, just putting a proposal into Kripalu, um, to, to really reduce the amount that we're mowing the property and letting some areas go into uh, mid succession forest. And so there's like, um, it's eco, you know, he, he writes about ecological boredom, in his book, right. um, Feral. And that was something I write. I kind of took that idea and wrote about a little bit in rewilding and something I'm fascinated about the ecological boredom and how rewilding is a way of, uh, um, sort of stimulating or ourselves yeah. and, um, you know, just making our, the little plots of Eden that are ours to caretake as biodiverse and ecologically rich as we can and how stimulating that is and healing yeah. that is for us to, to like try to create little places for, to dwell. Um, oh, totally. 
Yeah, yeah. keeps us on our toes. And again, back to the whole economy piece. And as you were saying, gardening being like not only fun, but right now, um, honestly, like with looking at the way the economy is slowing down and that, when it picks back up again, you know, foods are going to be very expensive. Like for health conscious consumers, it's going to be challenging um, to find, you know, like or, or prices of organics going up, everything going up, right? So what a great time to at least start to look whether it's for wild foods in your local neighborhood or again start to interact with your land at least from a food standpoint without a doubt um yeah well it's what we were just chatting about i think is kind of segueing into the next question but talking about fire lighting you had mentioned the elements and how we commune with them i speak about that a lot on the show and i see them as medicine essentially um my into most things spirituality it all comes from health very interested in health so i see us lighting a lot of unhealthy fires around the world right now. Um, whether that be corporations, uh, almost everybody. So, you know, look at it at like slash and burn agriculture, things like fracking, heck water's coming out of like taps on fire, um, ozone depletion, making the sun hotter. So here we are with this very unhealthy relationship, uh, with fire, you know, folks smoking cigarettes, throwing them out the windows in like California and in, in the hills when meanwhile there's, you know, so easily can go up in flames, I find so many folks don't know, believe it or not, how to even light a fire if we were to go in the backyard and light a fire right now. So I don't know if you've noticed that too throughout all your years. I don't know if you can maybe draw any relationship as well, but if something about fire and how we can maybe start to commune with the element of fire in a healthy way as we go forward here. Yeah. Um, it's, it's something I'm, I love to think about and talk about and, um, be with, um, yeah, fire is, um, you know, fire is the one element that, um, probably had a huge impact on our evolution as a species. Yeah. Um, just from a couple of different perspectives. I mean, one would be when we learned to harness fire and birth fire, we were able to cook our food, um, which, you know, is, is said to have helped us uh, shorten our digestive tract um, right. because it helps when we cook food, it pre-digests, it makes it easier to digest. So we were therefore had to spend less time eating basically and mm-hmm. all in foraging. So there was more time we were just digesting food and then we could do other things rather than constantly having to be putting food in our mouths all day. Right. Um, so that that's big right that there, but big, I think yeah. it's big. I think but, like, but what, but what really get kind of lights my imagination is, um, you know, there's a black elk quote that I came upon when I was like in my early twenties from black elk speaks and obviously Lakota Sioux native American tribe black elk said birds build our nests in circles. birds build their nests in circles and ours is the same religion as theirs. Mm. Speaking of the Lakota Mm -hmm. birds build their nests in circles and ours is the same religion as theirs. And that just blew my mind. Like, so wide open. Right. Um, when, when, when we light a fire, people come to, to a circle around it. Right. So fire convenes human community. Right. Mm -hmm. And for tens of thousands of years, all of our ancestors on all continents ended every day, more or less sitting in a circle, gazing into a fire. And so fire was like the original cable TV. It was that thing, right? <laughs> that, yeah. yeah, it was like that thing that at the end of the day, you put your burdens down, <clears throat> gather with your family and mm-hmm. friends, right. 
and, and you'd stare into the fire. And after a little while, you'd start to go into a trance, right? Mm -hmm. Because like, so we're going, fire takes us right up into high band alpha brainwave state. Mm -hmm. So it's essentially like that place where we go in meditation. And it's also that place that puts us to sleep. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Right. So, That's what I was thinking is right before bed, right? We're getting that infrared light. There's so, yeah. And again, we're looking at like sleep deprivation. And again, as simple as being connected to something so, I mean, we didn't have electricity, you know, well, it's been what, maybe a hundred so years, right? So it's just, again, we had that stimulus. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's ancient, it's powerful. It's a portal to meditation. Um, it's a portal to community. It's um, a powerful ally, right? Like it's comforting in the dark winter's night to have that source of heat and light. Right. It's, it's protective because if we're worried about predators, we have that, yeah. that hot lit flame to dispel you know, darkness. Right. You know? Um, and, you know, for me, you know, having learned some of the ancestral skills of like, and having been able to have those experiences of learning how to birth fire through friction with the yeah. bow drill or flint and steel or, or recently like learning how to do hand drill, Mm. Um, you know, when Tom taught us those practices at the tracker school, like, he, you know, I, I love the way he taught it, Tom Brown, you mm. know, he, he said, this is not a, like, this is a practice of thanksgiving and gratitude. This is a practice of humility. Like th this is a sacred right when you birth fire in this way and you come to it, you empty yourself of all hubris. Like you come mm. to this empty, right? Right. And what, what's, what's great about the practices of the ancestral skills, like bow drill, for instance, is I've been doing bow drill for 15 years. I fail at it six times out of 10. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for saying that. Cause I still have, I still have to light a bow drill fire and I've talked about it on the show a lot. And it's, if you listen, it's, I've never formally admitted this. So I'm totally, I'm totally putting myself out vulnerability. This shows about honesty, right? Um, oh, yeah, man. I haven't yet so done many. it, but in, in the current times, like with the slowdown and stuff, I said, okay. And, and again, to your book, empty yourself. And I'm, I hear my teacher's voice in my head. And so I went outside and I, I'm, I'm almost there, Micah. I'm going to tag, I'm going to take a picture of this first sacred fire. And I am going to, I mean, it's, it's something for me, but yeah, eventually I'm going to, I'm going to tag you on Instagram and show you, I got one going. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. And, and savor it and savor the whole process. Right. Because first one's for me. The second one I'll show, I'll yeah, share with you. Totally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For sure. It, it's, it's the, um, it's the failing that is the great gift of yeah, it right. to me. I think it's, it's that. Because, you know, we, there's so too many things are too easy these days. Like mm -hmm. nobody, we don't really appreciate like yeah. our shelter or our warmth or our yeah. food. A lot of the time we just take it all for granted, yeah. you know, and, um, that's, what's great about rewilding too, is it's like, it puts us back into that place of, um, uh, there's something about these practices that puts us in relationship to a higher power. Yeah. Or at least for me. And, um, you know, and it, that, that it, there just is. Um, yeah. and so, <clears throat> so the fire practice, you know, and even, you know, so there's bow drill, there's flint and steel, mm -hmm. there's hand drill, you know, you've got your ferro scraping like a ferro rod or maybe right. just a lighter or matches. Um, knowing how to birth fire is a, is a critical skill mm -hmm. I feel because, um, fire is foundational to human culture. Um, so every child in every school should learn how to make a fire. Yeah. Um, whether it's, it seems like it's, um, useful or not, like it's, it's just a foundational skill, like the ABCs, I feel like, Without a doubt. um, and I guess the last thing I'll say, um, about fire is that, um, 
You know, I, I read a book years ago, um, maybe you've read it, Sean, called The Road. No. By Cormac McCarthy. Okay. I'll have it in the show um, notes. And I think he won the, he won the Pulitzer for, I think he won the Pulitzer for that book. Um, he's a great American Western author, but okay. the book, it's an apocalyptic story about a father and a son who are living in a post-apocalyptic world. It's a very dark, it's a very dark book, but, um, you know, the father throughout the course of the story talks to his son about, um, we've got it. We, we've got to carry the fire. Mm. We've got to keep the fire lit. And what he was talking about was like, even though there was like, it was almost as if he and his son were the last spark of humanity, you know, everything else had become so depraved and so dark that Mm -hmm. their love and their bond was like that last spark of, of humanity that was left. And and the story is about like, you got to keep the fire lit. Mm -hmm. And so for me in these times, when I teach about fire and we're working with birthing fire and carrying fire, there's a there's a a practical survival physical skill, but there's a deeper underlying message about carrying hope and uh, carrying light and being a fire carrier. Yeah. Um, because we need people who can carry the fire. Um, and you know we've our species has lived through very very challenging and dark periods. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've just now lived in a period of time for the last 60 years or so where it's been relatively stable and peaceful, but that's not, it's not always going to be that way. No, it's not. All things must change, right? right? Yeah. And permanence without yeah. a doubt. And so like, you know, just having, having these skills and these underlying deeper teachings, I think is, uh, it, you know, it's important. And yeah. Again, it's not just the lighting of the fire, um, but it's the process. It's the invitation again, to go inward and, and, and have hope and sit with your stuff or whatever it may be, whether you're carrying on that last fire or if it's for your family or, or what have you. But yeah, it is, it's that lineage that I think really truly makes us human is, is our ability to commune with fire. Yeah. Without a doubt. And actually I love in the book, I believe, I don't was it, your daughter had said something. You have a daughter, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Just making sure. I, yeah. So <laughs> your daughter had said that if something were to go wrong, dad, and you know, uh, you had your bow drill, you would be able to protect us. Right. And honestly, it goosebumps and brought a tear to my eyes. Just uh. so like melted my heart. But in here you are, it's like, yeah, I got like, you know what I mean? And, and here's yeah. the, t- and in this day and age, not too many men, women, whoever, uh, you know, leader of their family can say that. Right. So I think there is, you know, there's something to be said there. You know, it's awesome. Yeah, that was a sweet moment. We were walking so up cool. uh, the Appalachian Trail um, on Mount Greylock, which is the highest mountain near us. And yeah, Cora turned to me and she said, uh, "Yeah, Daddy, if if we if we were if we had to spend the night out here, you could scrape your knife on your fire stick and make a fire and make shelter for us, and we'd be okay, wouldn't we, Dad?" Right. <laughs> yeah, oh, she's man. so cute. And I was like, "Yeah, we'd be okay, Cora." But yeah. I, you know, but at the same time, I'm like. I really hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> right? See that domestication creeps in just like that. You were, you know, like I say, those eight, the eighties, they, they grip you strong, right? That's yeah, definitely, yeah. Uh, once you've played Atari, you can never go back. Um, unfortunately. Well, you know what? I think this is a great time. We're getting on the hour mark. Um, and I thought maybe, yeah, we could go into maybe a little practice that folks who are in a city right now, who are, you know, might be still, obviously we're, I'm dating this episode a little bit, but um, even still, if we get, once we're through all this and you're stuck in your cubicle and you've got that window looking over Central Park or what have you, or wherever you may yeah, be, yeah. how can folks maybe commune with the living earth that, in that way as a meditation, Great. say, or yeah. something? Yeah, well, I've had know. a little practice I'd love to share and it's, okay. uh, it's called breathing with the earth breath. Okay. I'm going to, and um, this is a breath that it's great if you do have a window, 
Um, and if you don't, then you can connect with the earth element just through the stability of the floor beneath you, the stability of your chair. The earth element is stable. And I've so my grounding, I've got my grounding mat here on my feet right oh, now. So there you I'm, go. I'm, I'm grounding. I'm going through this. <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah, if you can do this, if you have a window, great. Um, and if you if you can do this outside, that's even better. Um, and if you can take your shoes off and put your bare feet on the ground, then that's even better. So just find a comfortable seat or a, a standing position. And um, what we'll do is as we breathe in, we'll close our eyes. And I'd like you just to say to yourself, breathing in, I feel my body. And as you exhale, I invite you to open your eyes and just say to yourself, breathing out, I feel the earth. Okay, so that's the practice. Breathing in, I feel my body. Eyes close. Exhale, opening your eyes. Breathing out, I feel the earth. All right. So as you're ready, breathing in, I feel my body. Eyes are closed. Feel my body. Breathing out, I feel the earth. Eyes open. I feel the earth. Breathing in, I feel my body. Feel my body. And breathing out, I feel, I feel the earth. earth. So we'll just continue for a few more rounds, just saying it kind of internally to yourself. And if you can make that exhale a little bit longer than the inhale, that helps with the relaxation response. And one more round. And once you're complete, taking one more big breath in through the nose and letting it out with a sigh or a sound. And just noticing how you feel. Feel connected. Feel beautiful. Nice. Thank you. Good. I have a lovely, um, I have a lovely expansive view here. I'm on a hill at the North shore of Lake Erie in Port Stanley, Ontario. And yeah, I've, I've got the luxury of, um, what apparently used to be an old industrial area, which is totally, uh, you know, conservation, regeneration, kind of, um, reforesting and yeah, just being able to look out over there. And sometimes I get to see, I mean, lately it's been tons of eagles and, uh, mm. deer and the coyotes are running through in the morning and that, and it's, uh, Something That's like that awesome. is just is just what I need, and it's it's funny because I got outside before we got on the call here today, and I had my walk in nature. Um, I figured I had to before talking to you, but you know, doing that, I think it doubled down on, on my dose mm -hmm. of nature today. So yeah, it's been a pleasure to pick your brain on all things rewilding. So maybe tell folks of all the practices in your book and that what is it that you like to do, Micah, to tap into that wild part of your soul? Um, what's something you try to do on the regular as a rewilding practice? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the sit spot is really big. Um, I love in the morning to go out to my backyard with my coffee and I have like a little, um, like a wiki up meditation hut in my backyard. And we're so, I'm so privileged, you know, like our house is at the foot of a little mountain, uh, here in Western Massachusetts. And I have a beautiful stream that goes through the backyard, a little brook. And, um, also there's so much bird activity. And so I love to go back in the morning and just do the sit spot and sit and um, just open up and, and connect with the birds and the sky and the sun. And um, I, I, I love that, that mm. practice so much. Right. Um, 
but you know, I love, I love archery. So I've, oh, yeah. I've dabbled in making bows and I've made a few bows. Oh, I cool. love shooting bow and arrow. Um, I just absolutely love it. It's a spiritual practice. Yeah. Um, I've gotten into flint napping over the years. So sometimes cool. I'll, I'll get into that and work on, um, tool making. Oh, cool. I love the bushcrafting stuff. I love making mm. tools. Um, I love building earth shelters like wigwams and oh, bush, right um, debris huts and, and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Obviously the fire practices, you know, uh, the last couple, probably the last year and a half, I've really been attempting the hand drill. Yeah. Um, you, I which think is like, in your book, uh, you had commented on it being a challenge. So you, you kind of, you've, you've got it now. Yeah. Well, I've birthed a few coals with the hand drill. Mm. Um, and that was kind of like when I did the tracker school back in 2008, my first time, you know, and I learned the bow drill, the hand drill seemed like Mount Everest. It was yeah. like, I didn't know if I'd ever attain it in this life. And mm. it was just something I kept plugging away at. And right. it just, so that was a really big one for me this year is to just have be gifted with, with a couple of coals. Um, and so that's, that's, that's awesome. been sweet, but foraging, yeah, you know, right, it's like right. all the stuff, you yeah. know, I, I like, it's all just so fun. And right now I'm working on making a burden basket with willow that I'm, I'm working on, oh, cool. but, um, you know, I, I love, I love the hands-on skills. I love the meditation practice. Um, but I think, you know, a core, a core practice remains that sit spot practice for me. Right. Right. Without a doubt. And yeah, I'm glad you mentioned foraging too. It's not something we didn't chat too much about, but on my walk prior to our call, yeah, I noticed some things are looking extra green popping out there. So yeah, I saw some dandelion and uh, yeah, I think I know what I'll be doing here pretty soon. So yeah, it is that exciting time for sure. Um, And what, you know, what better time to get out there and get some food right off the land, like some dandelion or some plantain in that. Um, So yeah, last question for you, Micah, is what is your wildest dream for the earth? Um, You know, obviously something that can change over time, but yeah, for you, what is, what's coming up for you here today? my wildest dream for the earth. That's a great question, Sean. Um, You know, I think um, I've been meditating a lot on the year uh, 2230, which is the seventh generation from today, our seventh generation the Haudenosaunee um, tribe in New York state, um, you know, have this ethic of the seventh generation when they have to make a political decision or tribal decision, you know, they think about, well, how will this affect the seventh generation from now? And uh, if you consider generations 30 years, um, our seventh generation is living in the now in the year 2,230. So um, I dedicated the book to those children um, yeah. and my wildest dream for the earth is that, um, that, that, that we have passed on a, uh, biodiverse, healthy, vibrant, uh, world to those children with, um, clean air and clean water and, um, an abundance of species living wild. And that, um, human beings have, um, have come to a point where we can exist, um, in a state of harmony, you know, with the rest of creation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's my wildest dream. That's an awesome dream. Carrying the fire to the future generations is kind of how I see it right now. So definitely a lot of hope. And, um, yeah, that was beautiful. I think is a great way to end our show. But before we do that, 
please share with folks how they can um, find more about your work, your book. We're going to link things in the show notes, but if there's anything you would like to yeah, share with everybody, please do. Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Sean. Um, yeah. So if you're interested in, um, my work, you can go to mikemortality.com. Uh, there's a link to my book, Rewilding Meditations, Practices and Skills for Awakening in Nature right there. Um, the book's available like all the major booksellers in the world and, um, Amazon and, um, the school that I'm the dean of is the Kripalu School of Mindful Outdoor Leadership, and Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health is the largest yoga-based retreat center in North America. We're located in um, Stockbridge, Massachusetts, in the Berkshire Hills, and um, uh, I run um, the School of Mindful Outdoor Leadership there, where we train people to be human people to become uh, mindful outdoor guides mm-hmm. um, who act as ambassadors between people and place using mindfulness and. We incorporate a lot of rewilding practices into uh, the training and our mindful outdoor guides are all over the world mm-hmm. uh, in their communities, serving a variety of populations. Um, and so you can find out more about that just at Kripalu.org. Lovely. And that's uh, a yeah, timely, timely course. If there's anybody out there who's feeling the call to reconnect with nature, uh, having gone through it and, you know, being keen on the, the whole idea of nature schools and, and, you know, studied them myself. This one is honestly, it's great. So it's a real pleasure to have you here, Micah. Thanks so much for sharing all your passion and, uh, love for the living earth. And to all you guys out there, please go stop by, check out Micah's work. Um, and if you enjoyed this episode and you feel like it could help somebody else out there, please share it with a friend. And as always stay wild. Thank you for listening to the Rewild My Bio podcast. Please subscribe to the show and leave a five-star rating if you've enjoyed this episode. I would greatly appreciate it if you shared the show with your friends, if of course you think they would like it. You can also visit rewildmybio.com to download previous episodes and sign up for the newsletter. In the newsletter, I share blogs and bonus content from my health promotion research, along with practical tips to help you rewild in a modern world. Please follow along on Instagram and Facebook at RewildMyBio and on Twitter at Sean Slade. Thank you so much for listening and until next time, stay wild.